So, we can talk some more about this morning's message on the Protestant Reformation and the Gospel, or we can go back to our discussion of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. So, I'll open it up to a further discussion of this morning's message. Any questions? I'll be shocked if there aren't any. Everyone's like, you know, that's pretty much what I thought. Pretty much what I thought. Yes. Mm. Carefully. <laughs> no, no, no. If, if you listen to R.C. Sproul's thing, that little two pack on there, he he does a good job. Like, for instance, they know they know perfectly well that you cannot, in any meaningful way, speak of deserving or meriting grace. As Paul makes it emphatically clear, grace would not be grace if it were based on merit or desert. So they came up with a term called condign grace, which is to say that if a person were to complete works of satisfaction and penance, God would not be obligated to be gracious to them, but it would be consistent with his character to do so, and were he not to be gracious to them, it would be unbecoming and odd. See, that's a nice way of dancing around obligating grace. Condign grace. Um, so they, they're, they're, they're very... Um, they're very clever in doing it. Also, and the reason why I made the last point, reading all those passages that insist we must have good works, they'll, they'll camp out on those. Now, notice none of those passages that I quote at the end, Paul's, those who practice such things, none of those say, by doing these things, you earn God's favor. It simply says, those who practice such things will perish, right? And I was trying to explain, they're true. Here's how they're true, because all who are born again, all who are saved, will bear fruit. The Spirit will work through them. The shepherd will shepherd his flock. So that's how you can say all those who are going to heaven will produce good fruit. We can say that without saying justifications by works. So they're, they're going to look at those passages heavily and camp out on them in a big way. Um, and they're also, though, going to use tradition as an equal Authority. I mean, that, that's why I started out saying they've got three pillars. They've got the scriptures. But unlike us, who we say, if you can't prove it to me from the Bible, I'm sorry, they've got two other places to turn to church tradition and councils and the Pope speaking ex cathedra. And they've got plenty of stuff from those two categories to back up their doctrine. Zeb. Mm hmm. Right, right. That's it. Yep. It sure looks like Paul is saying he's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like I said, I'll, Natalie, one second. You've got to be careful when you're talking to Roman Catholics because my dad recognized that the popes had contradicted themselves. He did not hold the papal inerrancy. He had some view of papal authority like we should really take seriously what the Pope says. But I asked him, without having to twist his arm at all, Dad, if the Pope disagrees with the Bible, then what? And he cautiously said, well, if it's clear what the Bible means and there's no way you, to misinterpret it, then the Pope's wrong. 
said, awesome. You know, and then we went to John 3, you got to be born again. And, all that kind of looks. and that's, that was actually the inroad I took in witnessing my father. So again, don't, don't take it for granted that every Catholic meet believes all these things. But this is the official Roman Catholic teaching. So, so I, I am very, very strongly opposed to the Roman Catholic official doctrine. I, I want to be kind, gracious, generous, and ask questions of my Roman Catholic neighbors. And, and that's the distinction. Natalie, then Ellen. One, one um, thing that's really helpful is listening to the briefing with Al Mohler. Al Mohler does a good job. Everything the Pope says technically hasn't changed anything. He's just basically finding fringe case things to say. And what basically what the Catholic Church says is where people are doing good works and using the best they know with natural theology. They're getting this from Thomas Aquinas. Where people are doing the best they know with the revelation they have and where they're doing that, God will respond with condign grace and he will make up the difference. So in theory... You don't have to believe in God to go to heaven. The Pope is not saying how many people he thinks will meet that criteria, but it sounds really good for a soundbite to say, which is completely consistent with Catholic theology, that it is conceptually possible to consider people who don't even believe in God, who, by virtue of improving upon the grace they have, that's the whole concept. You're you're given this lump of grace, and then you improve upon it, and you build upon it, and you, 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 you shine it up and make it bigger, and, and as much as it would be odd and unusual, it, it, Roman Catholics can conceive of that happening in, in, to unbelievers who don't believe in the God. So when he says that, that sounds all shocking. He hasn't disagreed with anything on canon law at all. Yes, those are the primary ways. But they're, they're recognizing that God can do mysterious things if he wants. For them... The Eucharist is the primary central way of receiving grace, which is why the Pope, our men's group, we've got 12 guys in two different groups going through church history, um, and, uh, or at least one of, one of them still is. Um, <laughs> sorry. Okay, but they were. And you saw, we read about how the Pope would bring um, European nations to their knees by closing communion. Because if, the, if, a, if a king of a country um, like Spain or France didn't agree with the Pope, didn't do what he wanted, he would just order all of his priests in Spain to stop serving the Eucharist and let the peasants know it's because your king is ungodly. And the king would have peasant revolts overnight because according to those peasants, they're all going to hell now because they aren't receiving the Eucharist. Um, and it really was like a chokehold over over those kings. In fact, there's a lot of political reasons why the German princes backed and protected Luther. I mean, some of them, I think, may have been believers. Some of them just saw, we finally get to get out from under the Pope's thumb, politically. Um, so, so, yeah. Alan. Okay. Declaration of Faith for Infallibility in 1870, and her bodily assumption was having declared by Pope Pius XII in 
Okay. So the Pope's ex cathedra is not used that frequently, apparently. Okay. What you may not know is that during the Great Schism, there were three duly appointed popes simultaneously vying to be pope. The Pope Wars. I mean, it really it should make a movie. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be a fascinating historical um, period because basically the cleric, and the, what's bizarre is the same group of bishops made the first guy pope. He didn't turn out to be the type of person they wanted politically. And then they're like, um, we were in error and made him pope. We're making this guy pope. So the same group of clerics, of bishops, appointed two popes simultaneously, and it ripped the whole thing apart. And then they made it. Then towards the end, they made a third guy pope because they thought they reached a peace treaty. If both you guys will step down, will you, both you guys stop claiming to be pope and we'll just make a new third pope? And both of them said yes, and then one of them's like, no. And then the other guy's like, well, if he's not, then I am. And you got three popes going at the same time. Yep, the Babylonian, yeah, the yeah, the French captivity of of yeah, the, the, and since then there hasn't been a non-Italian, there hasn't been a there hasn't been a French pope since that since they got out of Avignon. Yes, exactly. Yes, no, it it really yeah, but again, I, I really don't want to bash or mock. Although some of that stuff's just like whoa, I mean, you read through and it's just crazy. But anyway, um, yeah, yes, Elsa. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think a person can know what they mean by the mass and take it in faith. I think, I think to know, you might be able to do it in ignorance. The question: If you are a quote born again Catholic, if you're one of those who are saved in the Catholic Church, how can you partake of the mass? I would say, if you have any idea what they think they're doing, you can't. Let me go to First Corinthians ten, eight, then ten. Great, great question, Elsa. Great, great question. Okay. Verse 4 of chapter 8. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom all things and from whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols eat food really offered as, as really offered to idols, and their conscience being weak, it is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are not the worse off for what we eat, no better. We do not care, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged in his weak conscience to eat food offered to idols? So pause. Paul has Paul on the one hand is saying, because, because there really aren't other gods. These religions are all false. I got no problem eating a cheeseburger in the temple to Diana. 
Yeah. Now, be careful that someone doesn't see you and misunderstand that. But in principle, Paul's saying, you know, hey, why not? Go over a chapter now. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? Well, I thought Paul just said there is no such thing as a demon, so eat in the idol's temple. What's the difference? What's the difference in context between 8 and 10, or is Paul contradicting himself? The difference is in one, he simply has in view buying the meat after it's been offered to an idol at the market square and taking it home and eating it, or maybe having a meal in a building used for idol worship. The other, he has in view participation in false religious practice. That's the distinction. So you want to you go get married? You want to rent down a Catholic cathedral because you like the architecture? Awesome. Great. No problem. It's not tainted. Or a Mormon or a Buddhist temple. That's fine. You want to rent it out and, and do that? I mean, it might seem a little odd, but that's totally fine. The building is not contaminated. You know, They didn't pray demons into the stones or anything. That's totally cool. You want to participate in false religious practice and say, oh, God knows my heart. It's okay. You can't do that. And that's, that's the contrast, because that word participate, go up, go up a little further earlier in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians 10, it's what he uses about the Lord's table. Therefore, my beloved, verse 14, flee idolatry. I speak as the sensible people, judge for yourselves. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? There's that word in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? And, and you could even more translate that more literally, a fellowship, a koinonia, so we're doing something together, and we're participating together in this act, this, this, this sign. Consider the people of Israel, are not all those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food sacrificed to idols is anything, or an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. So once you understand that what they're doing, even though externally, from half a mile away, it may look like what the Bible's describing. What they mean and what they understand they are doing is pagan. God becoming a wafer. You read, we read that. He, it, it contains his body, his blood, his soul, and his divinity. It is God in the, the word became cracker in, in every sense of the word. And eating it by physically ingesting it, you are ingesting grace. Physically. That's That's pagan. That's absolutely pagan. And that's what they intend and mean to be doing. And once you know that, I would suggest you can't participate in that without sinning. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that would be my answer. Yes. Sure. 
all, all I mean by that, certainly they aren't worshiping the same Jesus because they're not, as Jesus says, look, no one comes to the Father but by me, and you don't come to Christ except in faith, and otherwise you come, Lord, I never knew you. So, like, what I mean is on paper, what they state about who Jesus is, we would agree with. Just like their definition of the Trinity, we would agree with. On in, in regards to propositional statements of what they believe, if you just limit it to who is Jesus, what is the Trinity, we'd, we'd say, yeah, yeah, that's what we believe. That, that's all I mean to say. I, I, I recognize it's all holistic, fits together, and you can't be like, well, I worship Jesus, but with a different gospel. Then you're not worshiping Jesus. Fair, no, fair enough, fair enough. Dave. Well, their understanding of the... Vi- no, what, well, I think, I think what Linda's point is this. If, if you think Jesus' death is not enough to save from the full punishment of sin, which they don't, they think you need to add and, and, multiple, and the saints pour in, then that does have to beg the question, who do you think he is? Okay, fair enough. You start, the, implications, the implications of their view of the insufficiency of his death start to question what they mean when they say he's God. Fair enough. But I'm saying certainly on paper, and certainly from like a, a straightforward sense, we're in agreement about the deity and the humanity of Christ. We would all agree the Chalcedonian Creed statement of the divinity of Christ. Fully man, fully God, indivisible. I mean, there's these worked out creeds that we'd all say, yeah, that's a pretty good explanation of it. And we'd all, we'd all thumbs up that. Just as we'd thumbs up who God the Father. Yeah, we pretty much all agree who God the Father is. I mean... What I said, no, but it's bears saying again, there are Catholics who are not fully aware of Catholic teaching. What I also said, though, is that nobody who believes what Rome teaches about the gospel will be saved. I firmly believe that as well. So the people in the Catholic Church who are born again are born again in error, in spite of Catholic doctrine, not because of it. Yes? I would venture to say there are heretics. Yeah, that... Sure. That, that entirely could be possible, too, which is the other point I made when I said that the American Catholic Church has a long leash. I mean, there's people getting up on TV with views on, on gay marriage, views on birth control, that absolutely defy Vatican decree. And nothing happens. So it's clear the, the Vatican lets, gives a lot of leniency, which leaves room, potentially, for a priest to get saved and, and to teach the gospel, which is why take your Catholic friends, case by case, church by church. I'm speaking to what comes out of the Vatican, what is official, and, and please don't just extend that and walk up to your Catholic friends, so you think I'm damned to hell, huh? <laughs> that would not be a good way to start a conversation. Yes? No, I, I, my, my main point is to make it clear that just as uh, Paul speaks of the Jews saying that they are enemies of the cross, beloved for the Father's sake, but enemies of the cross, R- R- Roman Catholicism as a system of belief is on the other team doing the work of the enemy. God, in spite of that, will be pleased to pluck firebrands from the fire and save 
those from in within it in spite of and not because of it i'm just trying to make it clear it's not like well they're mean well and they're trying they're a little confused but no they're on the other team as a system of belief like i can look at i can look at some really really um strange forms of christianity and say i think they could be brothers and sisters you know what i mean um i i some of the people who buy into the prosperity health wealth thing as much as i despise the prosperity gospel I genuinely think that there could be people who think the gospel promises that I'll be healthy and wise, and they've got the gospel okay. Uh, the gospel promises me forgiveness from sin and prosperity and health. I think that's a dangerous error, and the people that teach it, I, I get angry at. But you know, that, I, that doesn't necessarily have to be another gospel. It, it certainly could be. Um, people, certainly, the disagreement we have with with some with um, with obviously. The, Infant baptism, eschatology, all these things. Like we can, we can agree. We can have a family disagreement. Disagree as a family, brothers and sisters working things out. Um, Paul busts open Galatians, saying, "You know, I'm going to start." He's silly place. He starts cursing people, and a little later in the book, he has his strongest imprecation when he basically says, "For those who say you need to be circumcised to be closer to God, I wish they'd go all the way." No, he says, "I wish they'd emasculate themselves." It's absolutely what he says. It's the harshest thing Paul's ever said, all in reference to this issue. And there, all that was being added was, is faith in Jesus plus circumcision. Faith in Jesus plus circumcision, and you're saved. And Paul goes to the mat over it. Notice my use of a sports analogy. Um, and I wrestled in high school, so I, got, I, can, I, can, I can use that one, right? Um, but Paul goes to the mat over that. And yet in Romans 14, hey, one guy eats meat, one guy doesn't. The guy who eats meat's right, but just, you know, let's not argue about it. Let's get along. Let's be okay. And we've got to distinguish, because there are churches where they fight over everything, right? I mean, the, the carpet's got to be red. It has to be. For the blood. No, it's red for the blood of Jesus, Alyssa. Sorry. What? And and, and <laughs> Ron, Ron, Ron. Mm. Yeah. Catholic, when, when I was growing up, I was told believe in God, but when I became saved, it became clear that you know the devil. Mm. Yeah. We weren't that's not told in Catholic. No, 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 abs absolutely. Absolutely. Go to Galatians five. There's a passage in Galatians that I was gonna close with, but we ran out of time and because I wanted to be mindful of the children's musical, I didn't want to go late. Um, so you can thank the little children. Um, okay, I thought I was going to get more of a laugh for that, but okay. Galatians 5. Um, no, because this is tough, because you're going to meet people who, who do this. And, and I would submit to you that in, in Paul's day, the issue was circumcision, but 
I, I, would, I would say that people that insist that faith plus baptism are doing pretty much the exact same thing the Galatians are, and there are churches even around here um, that insist. Um, I, I know, at least where I came from, um, the Church of Christ, the Boston Church of Christ, strongly held the baptismal regeneration. So much so that they'd say if they didn't do it, if you weren't baptized by them in their water, it doesn't count. So I know the Church of Christ can, can move and have different versions, but the Boston Baptist of Christ, the Church of Christ was hardcore. And listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5, because we do, we, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, our world doesn't want us to be judgmental. And the last thing we want to do is say we did it wrong, and that's really the intolerable sin. The only heresy is to say that there is heresy. I get it. Look at the strength of Paul's language. Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, the issue isn't circumcision. I, I I don't want to know, but I'm guessing there's people in this room who are. Um, the issue isn't that. He makes it clear. It's being so to be justified. You who would be justified by law. Um, that, and he makes it clear. You mean that little of a doctrinal error can damn someone to hell? That's exactly what Paul just said. I don't think you can be any clearer. You are severed from Christ, verse 4, you who would be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. So, yeah, I, I do think that this was a necessary disagreement, and I do think it, would, it was worth splitting the church over. And, if the, and as long as the agreement, disagreement continues, it's worth being clear on. It's, it's worth um, being precise on. And... Um, that's yeah. That's that's the point. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. And Paul makes it clear this is one of those make it or break it issues. This is one of those brick wall issues where you take, lose the brick, the whole wall comes down. Martin Luther said, and I didn't read the quote. I, I had a lot more quotes than I read this morning. Um, Martin Luther said, "This is the article by which the church stands or falls: justification by faith." That was his estimation. Because if this article stands, the church stands. If this article collapses, the church collapses. And so we need to be clear on it. You know, um, I do certainly think somebody can be saved simply by a simplistic, you know, come to Jesus, ask Jesus into your heart message. Um, just because someone can be saved by such a simple gospel message does not give us any excuse not to understand the gospel deeply, robustly, and where we can communicate it far more clearly. Um, far more clearly. Any, uh, any other thoughts, questions? Yes, Lois. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
Let me, let me, it all comes down to what they're doing. I mean, if I was, I went over, I went over to, to, um, to Simpson for their Christmas Eve service, their Christmas service, and they're getting ready to do communion. And even though I, I know that present are people who believe a whole bunch of things, I was getting ready to take communion because I thought, you know, I can certainly hope all things, believe all things, think we're at least on the same page about what's going on here. And then Fritz said, we're to prepare to receive the host. And I know that word host in Lutheran circles means something. And all of a sudden, I looked at Serena and I said, no, I'm going to pass. Because now that he's said what the guy leading this service has said what he's meaning to do, I can't participate in this. While I remained in ignorance, and I could really honestly hope, hey, we're all on the same page here, I was willing to do it. I don't have to agree with you fully doctrinally to share the Lord's table with you. Um, I do have to agree with him what we're doing when we take the Lord's table. And so once he made it clear what he thought he was doing, I had to abstain. Because the word host is, is a terminology for Luther's consubstantiation, where Jesus is still present. He, he just isn't physically present. He's spiritually present. I, I, I don't agree with that, so didn't make an issue out of it. We just didn't go out forward. Um, so to, for me, at least, the issue would be, at least in regards to 1 Corinthians 10, is what's going on here false religion and a false religious practice? It could be weak sauce watered down Christianity. That's a different thing. Is what they think they're doing fundamentally different than what it ought to be? Yes or no? Yes, I'd stay off. If no, they're they're taking the Lord's table as a sign. You know, they're, they're kind of all over the place on doctrine, but I think as far as it goes, they're trying to honor Christ with a memorial meal. Great. That that's that'd be my my answer. To that good question. Yes, Elsa. Oh dear. Okay, we'll go there then. Okay. Um, the issue with attending any marriage—well, let me let me broaden that out to any marriage, right? Um, in my understanding, and this is the key issue: Romans one, the last verse of Romans one lists a bunch of sins. It says not only do they practice the same, but they give hearty approval to those who do. Now, in my mind, I cannot separate attending a wedding and being a witness to a wedding. I understand it's history. You gather the community together to witness the event. Okay. As I understand a wedding, I'm coming as a witness. Therefore, I am participating in it, and I am approving of it. Now, if somebody could work out in their head how they're not doing that, and maybe, no, maybe an argument could be made that you could attend a wedding without approving of the wedding, without participating in the wedding, then I'd say, okay, then you're, you're free. Um, I, I don't see, I don't see, but I've, I know people who like a friend of mine had an uncle who got married and her plan was to skip the wedding and show up to the reception to say that I love you. I thought, okay, that, that can fly. They'll know what they, and they'll also know from her perspective, I, I, the act itself, this, this ceremony is, is claiming to be one thing, marriage. I don't think it is. I, I can't show up. And, but after you've done it and after it's like, it's done, I can still show up and say, Hey, I love you. Hey, I care for you. Hey, I value you. And I thought, yeah, that works. That's cool, you know. Um, but I think the key issue to work through is in going to a wedding, are you participating and are you approving? But that would be the same thing for a, a sinfully divorced person remarrying. That would be the same thing for um, a believer marrying an unbeliever. Like, let's not just lame this on. The real question is, is this a righteous marriage? Is God pleased at this union? Now, marriage is a creation ordinance, so I think two unbelievers can get married, and I can do that. They don't have to be Christians. 
But is this, is this a marriage? Is this something that God is pleased with? Is God going to do it? Because Jesus rebukes divorce because of what God does in marriage. He doesn't, he doesn't rebuke divorce on covenant breaking. Malachi will make that argument. That is an argument. You divorce your wife by covenant. Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together. How dare you separate? So in a true marriage, God is doing something. He's doing a joining. So i got to ask myself, do I think God is doing that work in this union? Is, is God gluing them together, as it were? If he is, then if God approves, I'll approve and I'll show up. If I don't think he is, then I can't. Um, and so I want to broaden it not just to the gay issue, but to all sorts of issues. You know, um, So that, that would be my reasoning. Now, there are some people I've talked to who've said, I don't think you're participating, and I don't even think you're approving. <coughs> you're just showing your support, which I want to say, support of what? And how does support mean a, different than approve? But to be clear, it's, it's possible someone could work it out. I mean, th- I mean, it does beg other questions. Does that then mean I can never watch the video footage of your wedding? Because am I now approving of it? No, these are questions people ask me. Okay, fair enough. I'm not saying it's impossible to conceive of a way that you can go to a wedding and not participate and approve. I'm just saying as long as you are participating and approving, you can't go. That, that's where I'll rest and be safe. And I'll be open to someone making the case for how you can... What if I watch it on the TV? It's like it's a live event on TV. Fair enough. There, there, there's some tough questions there. So I just want to make it clear. If you are participating and if you are approving, then you can't do it. For any wedding that's an illegitimate wedding, whatever it might be. Linda. Well, I think in the case of my I think in the case of my friend, no one would mistake them for showing up and celebrating. Sure, if they're sitting there going, Woo, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, they were told if they didn't go to the wedding, they weren't welcome at the reception, so that became a moot point. But the reception was gonna be a picnic in the park with the family, it's like a family gathering. It wasn't like it didn't it wasn't gonna look like a party. And they were gonna show up. They offered that was their compromise. I, I'm with them on it. I, no, fair enough. You know, the reception is still my point if someone asked me. You want me to show up to the time where everyone rejoices because I won't be rejoicing, <laughs> you know. But I'm I'm just trying to show that what we can what we can say absolutely biblically, you cannot approve, you cannot participate. I will give some freedom to people's consciences and people's minds as they figure out what constitutes participation and celebrating. I think in my friend's case, by letting the couple know I can't go to your wedding out of conscience, no one thinks, and they aren't celebrating by showing up briefly. That's what they offer. I'll show up. I'll be happy to show up, reaffirm my love for you, um, reaffirm my value for you. And they said, if you won't go to the wedding, you're not welcome to come to the reception. And then that's how that played out. Um, all I'm, I'm just trying to be clear on what's biblically clear. I get you. There's some implications to that. I'm just not going to, I'm just trying to be a little more. Yes, Lee. Yeah. Well, we, well, no, but it's, it's both, Lee, in that where Scripture's clear, we, we don't need to pretend it's not clear and we just need wisdom. Like, God's, God's, God's given us wisdom. Um, all I'm saying is the Bible doesn't tell me clearly what exactly, what, where exactly the line between participation and non-participation is. I'm just not to do it. Okay. Yeah.
I know, and I'm well aware an argument could be made. Going to reception is to celebrate. Um, in this case, just some more details. It was basically a big family gathering, a picnic in the park. It was simultaneously a family reunion at the same time. And, I, and my friend, who didn't end up doing this anyway, um, viewed it like it's, it's, it's colluded enough that it's more just like the family's going to have a picnic and family. Anyway, we, we can talk some more, Linda. You're, Linda's not sold. That's fine. And, and Linda, if that's your thought, then don't do that. And it didn't actually even happen. So anyway, Adam. Oh, you've really opened you've really opened the can at him now. Okay, well I was just gonna say they God recognizes one, I'd say God recognizes the marriage, the other Yeah. Right, 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 right. The question Adam raised up is he does think there's a distinction because in the case of sinful remarriage, Jesus, he's citing John um four, still recognizes the Canaanite the Samaritan woman has had four four or five, five husbands. Um, and the man she's with now is not your husband. And so Adam's saying, even in those cases, even though they were sinful marriages, they're still marriages. Um, the, the real, the real sticky can of worms you bring up is the whole polygamy issue. You know, um, can a person who's married become married to another person? And we won't go there because we don't have to. But that's the sticky issue. That's the real troubling question because the Old Testament treats it like, to me like David has multiple wives. Not that he should have multiple wives, but he does. And so that's a whole other question um, that we will dodge and sidestep. we got four minutes to go. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I guess in some sense it's, it's, it's different. Um, I'm just saying from a Christian's point of view, is it, is it, does we want to reflect what God thinks. If God says it's good and is celebrating it, we want to celebrate and say it's good. If God is offended at something, we want to not approve it. So, yeah, no, but you bring up a fair point. In some cases, it is a real marriage. Let's take a believer to an unbeliever. They're really going to, at the end of this, they're really going to be married. At the end of this, they're going to be married, and we're going to want to treat them that way. At the end of something else, we may say, well, actually, you've said you're married, but you're not. Um... You know, so no, that that is a fair distinction. That is a fair distinction. Um, yeah. Yes, Zach. Woo, thank you. Get me out of some deep waters. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Zach's question. You meet a Catholic, they start saying, well, I know the Bible, but they also have this tradition. Tradition tells us, would I interact with that and argue the point, or would I um, just take them to Scripture? I do both. 
I'm a bit more aware of some of the church tradition than maybe, I mean, any one of you could be if you wanted to read up on it, but I, I have read up on it some. I might want to try to show them how the church's councils have contradicted themselves, how they've they've gone back and forth, they've changed their view on things, and to try to hopefully get them to see you can't recognize church tradition as an authority, it doesn't work. But you certainly don't need to do that. Always, the truth is the place to take them to. So you don't need to know all the different councils. I mean, I just simply ask them which which um, making of a pope was the right one, because the same group of people made two people pope, and that was a church council. I just go to the Great Schism and say, help help me as a Catholic understand what was going on there. Were these holy men of God filled with the Spirit in error when they elected the first pope or the second, or did was God the author of the confusion of that schism? Tell me. And then I thought there'd be an awkward silence, you know. But they'll counter, they'll counter with you wouldn't have a Bible without a Catholic synod. Because it was a Catholic council that gave us the canon of Scripture, the Council of Nicaea. Now, a couple things to that. One, Catholic just means universal, okay? So the Roman Catholic Church was very different in the fourth century than it was in the Middle Ages. Um, the corruption got introduced when, when ironically, its salvation was its death knell. When, when Constantine legalized Christianity and joined it with the state, anyone who had any political aspirations necessarily had to become a Christian. And Christianity had to accommodate that much broader and less pure tradition. While the church was under fire, it was purified. Because you weren't going to claim to be a Christian when it could get you burned alive. But now, you can't advance politically without being a Christian. And so over the coming centuries, the church begins to corrupt. So the Roman Catholic Church in the 4th century, I got no real beef with. You, know, you can't just be like the Roman Catholic Church because it's a moving target. But the second thing, and I made this point in our conference on biblical iner- in our series on biblical inerrancy, but in 1 Timothy 5.18, I'll make this point tonight, and we'll close with this. Go to 1 Timothy 5.18, and we'll be done. 1 Timothy 5.18. I made this point just a few weeks ago at the beginning of Luke. That's right. Yeah, because we were talking about it. Alan... You, you, yeah, we were talking about this exact point. Yeah. Okay. First Timothy 5, 17 and 18. But the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the... Now notice the introductory formula. is singular. The Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain, which is a quotation of Deuteronomy 24. The laborer deserves his wage, which is a word-for-word quote of the Greek of Luke 10, 17. And there's all the difference in the world between the Roman Catholic Council of Nicaea recognizing Scripture, just as the Christian church was already doing before that council, as evidenced by 1 Timothy 5, 18, and the Roman Catholic Church authorizing Scripture, which is what they want to claim they did. In other words, they want to claim until we canonized it, it wasn't Scripture. Tell that to Paul. Tell that to Paul. Paul and and not just Paul, but Timothy and the Ephesians and everyone they expected to read that letter was already on the same page believing Luke was Scripture. 
all without a pope. And all, they don't, you don't even get a pope, by the way, like the 5th or 6th century. So um, the first guy who calls himself the pope, you, you don't even get that till much later. Um, it, it, it develops. It's not like Roman Catholicism has been static for 1,500 years or 2,000 years. It absolutely has not. Um, so so that, that's, the, that's the rejoinder to the, yeah, well, you wouldn't have a Bible. Eusebius gives us records of all the books that were accepted in canon before the council. In other words, the church, the council was, hey, come out of hiding, and let's see if we're all on the same page as we hear and recognize God's voice in these new scriptures. Let's see if we're all hearing the same thing. Oh, hey, we are. Let's make a list of those books that we found that in. Zeb. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Nicaea was primarily about the deity of Christ. We have the Nicaean Creed of Jesus, his deity, dealing with the deity of Jesus. Absolutely. Okay. We will, wow, that was loud. We, we will uh, get together in a week's time. Um, and uh, James will be doing your thing. I'm going to win. You can pray for me. I'm going to winter set. I'm going to be teaching at Redeemer tonight. Um, and uh, you guys, and if there's one or two left, if, if there's not any more, those RC Sproul things are fantastic. Anyone, anyone in this room other than me, they're gone. But Wendell, Greg, they're, they're really helpful, aren't they? I mean, I'm not just saying it. Send Renee a link or an email. She'll make you some, put them in your box. Um, and I'll try to have 10 more out next week, okay? God bless. You're dismissed.